Welcome to Encounter. I'm Ed Kessler, and today we're attempting to grapple with Islamophobia, to what extent it permeates our society, and what can be done to tackle it. My guest today is Samaya Afsal from the Muslim Council of Britain and the Community Engagement Manager. Welcome. Thank you very much. We'll be talking in detail to Samaya about the nuances of Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred, but first we're going to cover the basics with the Wolf Institute's own Julian Hargreaves speaking to our own David Perry. Thank you, Ed. So, Julian, you've looked at the stats, you've read the reports, you've done the interviews with diligence and empathy. <laughs> Could we start with the definition? How do you feel about the definition of Islamophobia? It's a tricky one. The definition of Islamophobia has caused much debate since the emergence of the concept in the late 90s. The first significant publication was by the Runnymede Trust and the definition itself is quite simple, a fear or phobia of Islam and Muslims, to sort of paraphrase it. But rather similarly to the recent definition of anti-Semitism, it relies on a sequence of examples. And it's in the examples that I find some of the most prominent difficulties. Since then, there have been other attempts. A notable British attempt was done by Chris Allen in his 2010 book, Islamophobia. His definition sums up his own research and his own interests very, very well. However, it's almost a page long. The one that I settled on was from a, a year or two later, from a, a US scholar called Eric Blyke. And he described Islamophobia as indiscriminate negative attitudes towards Islam and Muslims. Just to sort of wrap up, the latest attempt almost kind of completes the circle. The Runnymede Trust celebrated 20 years of their initial Islamophobia report uh, and produced a new definition uh, two decades later and it's uh, the definition is quite telling really I think it says a lot about how the business of thinking about Islamophobia has moved on because their definition is now anti-Muslim racism which places anti-Muslim discrimination perhaps less in the sphere of religious discrimination and more in a kind of classic racism framework well I was <coughs> going to say on the street Islamophobia is surely mixed up with just generalised dislike of people from South Asia, isn't it? Well, according to the many accounts shared with me during my time doing fieldwork, yes. Um, Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred, often comes in a rather uh, uncertain package on the streets. And it's quite difficult for people, I think, to know whether it's their religion or ethnicity is being targeted if they're called a terrorist or if they're told to go home. What's being targeted at that point is, a, is an important issue, actually. Or, or a Sikh who's been accused of being a Muslim. Well, quite right, which was the case frequently in America after the 9-11 attacks. What about information to do with when these attacks occur? Have, have you got any details to do with your field work about, for example, after terror attacks and things like that? Yes, yes, I've had accounts shared with me 
of people who feel, Muslim people who feel particularly vulnerable after events such as terrorist attacks, military actions and wars in the Middle East. I think there is a sense of vulnerability out there. In terms of statistical evidence, there appeared to be a spike in faith hate crime or religiously motivated hate crime after the 7-7 attacks. But the figure that's widely reported was uh, collected by the Met Police in London and actually didn't break down the incidents by specific religious motivation. It was a sort of general religious hate crime category. So we might assume that the perpetrators were after Muslims, but we can't know for sure. Um, I think the stronger evidence really comes from the weight of anecdotal evidence and people's sense of an adverse social climate following significant events. I think you've done some quite detailed field work about looking into how problems arise, people getting cross with each other, rows mm. and so on. You know, we talk a lot about big data, perhaps this is tiny Tiny data. Micro data. Micro data. Could you you talk a little bit about Mm. that? Well, actually, there's there's sort of two sides to this uh, story about everyday occurrences, if you like. Um, The first is is revealed through notes and case files used by the CPS. And this is not research that I've done personally, but it's research I've been aware of from my time at Lancaster University. And if you look at some of the prosecutions, what becomes clear is that the average perpetrator of hate crime is often not the person you might imagine. So it's not always the case that it's a young, male, white, fully paid up member of some far right organisation. Often the element which triggers the criminal penalty for racially or religiously motivated crime, the trigger is often right at the end of the encounter. That's very interesting. Uh, Do do you think that's something to be optimistic about? Um, No, I don't think it's something to be particularly optimistic about. I think it's something which says a lot about our stereotypical view of hate crime, that it's somehow happening at a distance away from us and is not part of the fabric of everyday life, which it is. And when I talk to Muslim women up and down the country, I've been horrified by the amount of abuse received by women going about their everyday business, shopping, school gates, in doctor's surgeries, cafes, bus stops, train stations. All kinds of accounts have been shared with me over the last few years, at some cost to the person sharing it, actually. And it can be, it's a situation which needs to be handled with care. But actually, the anecdotal evidence from some of the female respondents I've spoken to is echoed in some of the statistical evidence where it is shown that actually physical violence is actually quite stable across the religion groups but more everyday forms of discrimination tend to spike for Muslim women. So the statistical data and the anecdotal evidence match up quite closely, actually. You mentioned stereotypes and you mentioned the media. I mean, we all have to live with uh, the sun. Well, actually, perhaps not the sun isn't the worst example. Well, Daily Mail. Yeah, I mean, 
we've talked already about the sort of stereotypical notion of the white young male bigot. And I think there's also uh, a related stereotypical view about right-wing newspapers being particularly Islamophobic. However, a large-scale study completed in around 2010 analysed a corpus of millions of words from British newspapers. And they looked at articles published by The Times, The Independent, The Guardian, by The Sun and and The Mirror and The Daily Mail. And what they found was that Muslims and Islam are associated with conflict and violence in all of those newspapers. And actually, terms like the Muslim world or Muslim community in the singular, you know, terms which present an abstracted notion of a very diverse Muslim population, these terms are just as likely to occur in the Guardian as they are in the Sun. And what the authors were arguing was that our society is being kind of fed this continual depiction of Islam and Muslims. And later on in this podcast, we're going to hear from Samia from the Muslim Council of Britain. And one of her colleagues there, Mikdad Versi, has had a lot of success recently in sending letters to newspaper editors asking them to withdraw articles and correct articles. But a bit like you know the, the, the idea of a, a young white paid-up bigot, we mustn't think that negative depictions of Muslims and Islam are restricted to the sun and the male. Well, thank you very much, Julian. I think it's high time we heard from our guest. Back to Ed. Thank you, David. So, speaking as a British Muslim, Samaya, how would you describe the problems facing the Muslim communities? I think Muslim communities around the UK face pretty much the same uh, challenges and, and problems that everybody in society faces, whether that's you know economic, whether that's political representation. But there's there are added things: racism, Islamophobia, um, particularly Muslims that live in de- socially deprived, economically de- deprived areas. There are often um, added on uh, challenges that, that we face. So that's you know whether we see um, the way that Muslims are represented in the media, uh, some of the barriers uh, and access to education, um, those kinds of things. So that, that it's it's like we face the same. Burdens, but there's a, there's a, there's an added there's a kind extra. of Islamic element to it, if there you is, like. That, yeah. that, that sort of. Uh, you mentioned entry into education. That's interesting. What barriers are there? So my background was uh, before I, I was involved in MCB was in higher education and trying to dismantle some of the barriers that, that Muslim students might face of things around uh, funding and, and student finance, uh, interest rates, um, those kinds of very physical barriers, but also because um, of be- because of Sharia and questions about. Borrowing money and interest, yes, you mean? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, generally just, just you know, children um, being the first in their families to go into higher education, not understanding, you know, h- how things work, how uh, how they're able to access services when, when they're in need, uh, culturally com- competent counselling services, you know, the, the, they're, they're very broad. Um, and the, the, those kinds of uh, issues were, were quite prevalent in, in, in the things that we were trying to fix. Right, and they're still prevalent now? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're, we're working towards fixing them, but... Uh, they, they definitely are. Samia, tell us a little bit about the MCB, the Muslim Council of Britain, because it's, it's had a lot of publicity, not all of it positive, but I think our listeners would be interested to know what it does and what it stands for. 
We are 20 years old. We have been operating as an umbrella body. Uh, so we have over 500 affiliates, over a thousand organizations that are um, affiliated uh, to us in, in some way. And we represent their views. Um, you know, we have the largest uh, cross-section uh, of, d- different, of different views within the Muslim, uh, within Muslim communities around the UK. We advocate, uh, we hold events, we support uh, mosques and, and different organizations in, in the challenges that they face. And I suppose any representative body has that challenge challenge of, of managing a whole swathe of different views and the Absolutely. Muslim communities like yeah. any other has yeah. a whole range of different views so what sort of challenge does that bring to the MCB? Yeah I mean obviously we're, we're a cross-sectarian organisation as well we have people from lots of different traditional um, backgrounds um, theological backgrounds so We've quite successfully managed to bring uh, bring the, those together, you know, within our national council, within our executive committee. We try to bring people together to work for for the common good. Um, so it's not, you know, what background you're from; it's more what you're doing to to promote goodness in society. And in terms of the challenge of Islamophobia and the problems raised by Islamophobia, what is your understanding, and I suppose the MCB's understanding of the nature and scale? of anti-Muslim discrimination uh, in this country? Um, it's, I would say it's in- incredibly prevalent um, in, in many different sectors. You know, we have people um, who speak to us on, on a daily basis about the kinds of discrimination that they faced, uh, whether that's on the street, whether that's within um, education, whether that's, um, you know, when they read a headline, um, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. Recently, we called for an inquiry into Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Again, the way that that was met, uh, met with little to no response. That, that this 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 kind of indicates the the level of uh, Islamophobia in, in the country. And one of the challenges that I think all minority communities have, and minority faith communities, is to what extent criticism is legitimate, and to what extent it's illegitimate. Yeah. And and in the last episode, we explored issues associated with anti-Semitism. And what was legitimate criticism of of, of um, things Jewish, um, and what was illegitimate to, um, criticism? And I, I wonder, is there that same debate going on in the Muslim communities about what's acceptable and what's not? Yeah, I think uh, as as any community, you have to be open to criticism. You have to be open to debating beliefs and ideas. But I think where that crosses the boundary into advocating for there to be less Islam or less Muslims in the, in the UK, for example, in Europe. That's the kind of language that then transcends that barrier. Um, and obviously, we, we're very uh, keen on uh, protecting free speech, as is everybody else in, in, in the UK. We're very open to debates. Um, but I think that there needs to be an understanding of, of how respectful that is and, and where the line uh, stands. It's a very difficult one. I completely agree, because it's when it exceptionalises a community. Yes. Yes. Whoever that community is. And today we're talking about Muslims and Islamophobia. You mentioned the Conservative Party. Um, I wondered what you thought of two recent interventions, one from Lady Varsi and one from Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your observation on those? Uh, so the, the Boris Johnson niqab? Yes. The derogatory comments yeah. about um, letterboxes. Yes. Is that the one you're thinking yes, of? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, uh, of, what, of what Boris said, if, um, if you see a senior politician, you know, speaking and writing about a piece of cloth that a minority of women wear in a, in a minority religion in the UK. Um, the fact that, you know, the attention on that is so disproportionate. The fact that there's, you know, spikes in, in hate crime after comments uh, like his comment was made. Um, I think it's incredibly worrying. Um, it's something that as a Muslim woman, you know, you, you, you walk out of the door 
very aware, self-aware of what you look like and how, how, you know, what you look like makes you different. I wear a hijab, for example. I tend to forget, you know, I'm wearing it as, as I walk out, but I'm constantly reminded whether that's through stares, whether that's through comments, you know, people muttering under their breath, people moving away from you in a train carriage. All of these kinds of things make up the common experience of a, of a Muslim woman. To have these kinds of deba debates emblazoned on newspaper columns and, and, and to have politicians speak about how you dress and why you dress is, is, is oppressive. It's needless and it fans the flames of Islamophobia. And it's, it's really, really difficult you know, to, to say as a Muslim woman that I belong in this country when there are people who have no idea what my experience is, have no idea of, uh, of what it takes to, to, you know, to, to dress like this, to then deliver their opinions on it. When it to, be, to be quite frank, it's, it's not their business. It's derogatory, isn't it? Yeah, and, absolutely. And I was thinking, actually, as you were asking, David, I remember when Saida Varsi went to her first cabinet meeting with a hijab. Do you remember? She was in Slovakia's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was such a positive, wasn't it? I mean, I felt as a non-Muslim, yeah. watching this Muslim woman take a position in the cabinet of the government, almost, she seemed to me, as a Muslim woman, yeah. was such a positive affirmation yeah. of what I, that Muslim woman, wanted to wear. And yet, this, you know, five years, seven years later, this incredibly derogatory remark, as yeah. you said. And you can't, you know, move away from the fact that last year in Bradford, there were um, a number of, of, of Muslim women who wear niqabs who had letters through their, through their letterboxes um, saying that they were going to be attacked because people see them wearing niqabs and, and people see them as as not part of society. And I think that, you know, it's either very foolish or it's very, very calculated. Um, and I think that, it, you know, between the two, you, you kind of want it to be neither when it's a senior politician. Absolutely. Perhaps you can help our listeners, the different dress. We yes. talk about hijab, we talk about niqab, we talk about burqa. Yeah. And, and these, are, these terms are commonly thrown around, but Absolutely. I'm sure many of us don't quite know what the differences are. So tell us. So uh, when a woman uh, wears a headscarf around her head, um, this is called a hijab. Uh, niqab is a face covering that covers um, everything except the eyes. Um, the burqa that people will probably be a little bit more uh, familiar with because it, it does tend to, to be talked about quite a bit is the completely full, uh, full covering. Could you, perhaps you could deconstruct first, because I'm always puzzled by this, that this sort of assumption from people like Boris Johnson, that this is, this sort of dress is oppressive on women and, and sort of put upon them from within the Islamic tradition. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can argue that there's nothing inherent in, in a piece of cloth or in, in, in the way that you dress that is oppressive. It's, it's more the, the lens that it's being viewed through. Um, so I think what I would say is it's incredibly important that if you are making these, these decisions and, and these opinions about Muslim women, that you actually go and speak to them, uh, find out what their experiences are, find out, you know, why, why, do, they, why do they dress in, in the way that they do. But in terms of tackling that, so, you know, when Boris Johnson made his remark about uh, Muslim dress and, and, and letterboxes, and then there was a, a spike in, in anti-Muslim hate crime. What would the Muslim Council of Britain do in response? And what might you do in your, you know, going around the country and working with Muslim communities? Um, what, what sort of advice would you give? Well, our, our immediate response was, was obviously to platform um, the views of, of Muslim women who wear the niqab um, and to, to help pe to help humanise the debate in that way because if there's one thing that's missing in a debate about the niqab, it's, it's women who, who wear it. Um, but also providing them the ability to set the narrative on their own. So it's, it's not something that, that women feel that they should um, have to always constantly, you know, uh, speak out about. You've talked about stuff that was illegitimate criticism. Um, is there something you, you'd put up as being valid criticism? 
Um, I, perhaps um, I was thinking of the argument that in a criminal trial, people need to see someone's face. Is, is that a reasonable point? Uh, yeah, abs absolutely. And in most, uh, if not all cases, um, anyone who, who was to be a witness or to, to take the stand in, in that kind of environment would, you know, be expected and would oblige and, and, and take it off. Same with, you know, going into places like banks and, and, and places where, you know, faces need to be seen. It's th th There's no problem in, in, in asking someone to remove that veil. Um, and I think that that's uh, one of the, the, the common misconceptions that, you know, once someone wears it, that's it. You know, you, you, you can't uh, speak to them. You, they're, they're cut off from you. But I think that those lines of communication are, are always there. One, one of the best uh, one of the best examples of, of encouraging that kind, th that, those kinds of questions and that criticism and, and, and that shared uh, conversation around, you know, what makes up Islam and why do Muslims follow uh, the religion and, and, and what do they do in, in, in those mosques is visit my mosque. Um, and it's a national day, open, open day that's facilitated by MCB each year. And, you know, last year we had over 200 mosques taking part. It's it's a way for local communities to go in, visit, see how we pray, see, you know, what what, what is the function, what is the out, um, you know, the outlook of, of, the, of their local mosque. Um, and it encourages people to have those conversations and not to feel shy in you know, in, in asking a Muslim, uh, you know, what they think and, and, and why they dress the way they do, for yeah. example. You get the take up, do you, from different communities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have um, each year, you know, people put on social media, we get lots of feedback. Um, as well from people who, who, who feel that they've their eyes have been opened uh, or who feel that they, in any other setting, wouldn't necessarily be able to visit uh, their local mosque, but they feel grateful for, for having that. There, there is something, isn't there, about crossing a threshold? Yeah. You know, even just walking into the studio, you, you go into a new space. Yeah. And so just by visiting a mosque and seeing that it's kind of an ordinary place... Exactly. Um, ...is important. Yeah. yeah. Um, and presumably, Interfaith Week is another opportunity to facilitate social contact. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. W one of the things that we do is attend um, interfaith events, you know, Holocaust Memor Memorial Day, any any event that, that brings together lots of different people. We think it's really important that the Muslims are there. We want Muslims to be known as, you know, a vital, a, a dynamic, you know, a, a really important part of, of British society. Um, and I think that the only way that, that we can do that is by being as involved as, as possible. Well, that seems a good moment to take a break. You're listening to Encounter from the Wolf Institute. If you like what you're hearing, check out our other podcast series, An A to Z of Believing, available every Sunday at wolfpods.wordpress.com or on your favourite podcast platform. Now, back to the show. We talked about how a lot of Islamophobic activity is directed at women, at Muslim women. Um, and um, it's interesting when you compare that to anti-Semitic activity, um, hatred of Jews, um, that there isn't the same proportion directed at Jewish women. There is anti-Semitic activity aimed at Jewish women, of course, but it does seem greater in terms of Muslim women. Why, why do you think that is? I think it's a combination of, uh, of different reasons. You have Muslim women who are incredibly visible um, and look very different, whether that's because they are you know, different ethnicities, um, the way that they dress um, is, is seen as, as quite alien sometimes. Um, and in, just just in, in, in general, women are seen um, as either one of two stereotypes, either incredibly weak and oppressed or as uh, as enablers and incubators of extremism. And if you if you use the um, example of, uh, of the bodyguard that was recently uh, shown on TV and the debate that that encouraged, you know, around Muslim women and how they're seen, if you see at the beginning of, uh, of the series, 
she was forced into, you know, wearing a suicide vest. And then in the end, she was the person who then orchestrated it all. Um, and I think that be- somewhere between the, those two, you know, incredible extremes, you find the majority of women. You have this dehumanization, I, I, I call it, on a broader scale, um, I guess, the, than the yes, men face. It's, it's almost it fails the principle of dialogue, which is to try and understand the other as the other wishes to be understood. Yeah. I will only understand you as I understand you. And I don't exactly. desire to understand you as you understand yourself and it, it, it really fails there. So you, you touched on the bodyguard and some of the stereotypes and of course part of your role is to go out amongst the Muslim communities, listen to the Muslim communities, talk to them about all sorts of issues including extremism, radicalization and terrorism. Tell us a bit about that. We did a series of roundtables in 2015 um, and one of the things that, that we found was Muslim communities regularly say that actually our opinions and, and, and our concerns never really seem to affect policymakers. And they never really seem to break the news um, as, as, as much as, for example, like really extreme views, just to use the example of the, the platforming of Anjum Chowdhury, for example. These concerns, we, we decided to kind of look into them a little bit more. So now we've now launched a national listening exercise where we're going around all over the UK to speak to Muslim communities. What are their concerns? What are their opinions? What do they feel um, is going wrong? What do they feel is, is going right? And how uh, how do they, they see themselves uh, as a stakeholder, as someone who is concerned about the safety of, of their country, um, as someone who is concerned about the perceptions that people have of, of, of their communities as well? And what, what would you say their number one concern is? If I had to ask you, what's the number one concern of British Muslim people? What would it be? The majority of the people that, that we've spoken to have referenced Islamophobia and prevent. And uh, generally, their, their feelings of not being heard and being misrepresented and people feeling powerless to be able to change that perception. And what can be done to change that perception? It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if the number one problem that Muslim men and women um, identified was questions about how much they earned, questions about how they bring up their children, questions about where do I send them to school. And how do we get from the number one concern being Islamophobia to the number one concern being what we might think are normal concerns about how do I pass on my religion and culture to my children? How do I make sure that they have a good education and so on? I think taking the issue seriously is, is really important. I think when, when you see p- people in positions of power and authority taking your concerns seriously, that goes a long way. If we were to see leadership from political parties, if we were to see uh, legislation and um, you know and reporting uh, incidents leading to outcomes, um, if we were to see real changes in the way that the media is regulated, all of these kinds of things I think would then help there's some talk about a, a sort of new gener- the new Muslim cool sort of young generation <laughs> of um, um, is, is that something that you think could be very positive in pushing things into a better direction? Yeah, I think anything that helps young people feel as though they are part and parcel, of, you know, of, of British society, British culture, um, and I think there's a real interesting way in which that a Muslim identity has mixed with, with the British identity. And it is incredibly positive to see Muslim young people owning uh, you know, the sectors that they're in, whether that be in journalism, whether that's in fashion, for example, um, all of these kinds of things. I think it's, it's important uh, to, for us to see role models. You know, Nadia winning the, the Bake Off was, <laughs> was, I think, seminal for, for Muslim communities to see themselves represented um, and included. Uh, in, in, in British culture. You mentioned the media. I mean, uh, there'll be lots of people in the UK who don't really read Muslims at all, and they get their information from 
the Daily Mail. Or what, 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 yeah. What's, what's yeah, your opinion were, about that? Yeah. <laughs> There was a there was a Yugov uh, poll that uh, asked people where how much they knew about Islam and, and Muslims and and you know the majority really knew next to nothing and then when people were pressed and, and asked um, where did they get that information from it was uh, through the media I think that's what makes media so so important and why it is incredibly important for them to get it right um, and and some of our work has been on on media monitoring uh, Mikdad Versi our spokesperson. Um, was uh, one of the, the first people who, who systematically, you know, um, complained and, and, and got inaccuracies uh, changed in, in headlines. Um, and this has, has led to kind of more awareness of um, the, the responsibility that the uh, broadcast media and print media have in uh, reporting accurately, fairly um, and without a bias. And I think that, that that's something that, that we're really, really keen on, on developing further. And over two years, we've, we had over 50 changes made uh, to uh, print media and, and broadcast media. Yeah, it's almost overwhelming how many um, articles are written about Muslims uh, on a daily basis. And then, of course, you've got the challenge of social media, yes. which is unregulated. Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's been a concern of mine for many years. I've, I've definitely, I mean, it's, it's got better um, marginally, but I remember, um, you know, receiving death threats, uh, rape threats, uh, people um, just sending me really, really, really graphic and, and horrible material, mm. simply because you know in my profile picture it's a it's a woman wearing the hijab, um, mostly you know voicing a political opinion, but actually most of the, most of the time just documenting what I'd eaten that day or you know a joke that I'd heard. So social media has been has been very difficult um, because people are able to um, to say things uh, behind behind the screen that they wouldn't necessarily ha- be able to to say to you. Yeah, it, a, it, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, just to hear that, that you've received such vitriol through the social media. And of course, it, it's true of other people. Um, we're very good at othering. Yeah. And that's, that, that's only increased in the last few years. And somehow it's unleashed this really unpleasant, xenophobic, uh, Islamophobic tendency, this sort mm. of flawed human condition. Because there yeah. is, isn't there, within us, that, that flaw that allows for this hatred um, and does that make you depressed or or do you feel that it's just part of human nature and we just have to cope with it? Yeah I, I think both uh, def- it definitely makes uh, me feel very depressed when when I see these these kinds of sentiments expressed um, and, and also when uh, you know when I realize that there are some people who will hate you regardless of, of who you are and, and, and where you come from and um, and, and how nice you are you are to them. So I think it's it's it goes a long way. I think that we've seen over the past uh, couple of years this this burgeoning you know this this idea that people have now have now got permission to be a bit more um, bigoted, a bit more racist, a bit more Islamophobic, and say, oh, you know, well, I'm just worried about the safety of my children. I'm worried about my country. I don't I don't feel as though we're a sovereign nation anymore. Um, and I think that th- these kinds of um, it, it comes down to dialogue, it comes down to political education a lot of the time, it comes down to uh, breaking down those boundaries that people might might have um, and, and, and having these these regular conversations. And you have groups that, that are, you know, facilitating these kinds of discussions uh, regularly. Um, but it's very, um, one of the, one something I saw quite recently um, in the National Conversation on Immigration that, that British Future um, ran, uh, was they, uh, they they asked people on a scale of, of 1 to 10 how positive or negative they felt about um, immigration. And they found that from the very negative, from, from number 1 to the very positive number 10, there were anti-Muslim comments uh, prevalent in all uh, numbers from 1 to 8. 
And these are people, so eight would be fairly, you know, mm. fairly positive about, about immigration. Um, yet they still then espoused in the comments anti-Muslim views. So it, it, it makes you think like just how much further you have to go. Um, it makes you think that we're living in a time that is incredibly divided, um, but we've got to put the work in to try and reduce that. I completely agree that we've got to put the work in. And, and also I think that, or perhaps I put it as a question, would you agree that fighting Isla- Islamophobia is more effectively done by non-Muslims? So in other words, that if a Jew or a Christian or an atheist or a Hindu or whatever comes across Islamophobia to actually call it out. And of course, as a Muslim, you're going to because it's yeah. anti-Muslim. Yeah. And likewise, anti-Semitic hatred or um, any other type of hatred, is in, in, uh, as far as anti-Semitic hatred is concerned, Jews are bound to be concerned because it's about Jews. But if non-Jews stand up and call it out, then mm. it's more effective, you yeah. see. So to what extent do you think Islamophobia, there's a sort of solidarity with other faith communities. I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it, but you know, is there also some good work being done um, in, in, in that sphere? Yeah, I think uh, people are definitely more vocal about Islamophobia than, than I've ever seen before. Um, but I think what, what's, what's really important is, is solidarity and allyship is really, is really, really key. Um, but I do think that the, the conversation about Islamophobia needs to be led by, by Muslim organizations. And I think that one of the, the biggest um, debates now is, is obviously, obviously the definition. But beyond that, then there, there needs to, the agenda needs, needs to be set. In our last episode, we, we asked uh, Daniel about the future. Did he look at the future with optimism as far as anti-Semitism is concerned? And so with this well-documented rise in um, Islamophobia and organizations like Tell Mama, which actually record attacks, don't they, and identify them, pass that on to uh, onto government. Does the future, in your view, hold more division in society? Are we going to face more polarization and anti-Muslim hatred, or are you more positive? Um, again, I, th- I think I'm both. <laughs> I'm. I, I think that we should expect it to get worse. Um, I, I don't see how um, civil society and organizations in, in, in the UK are going to be able to deal with the flow of, of anti-Muslim hatred in, in, their, in their current state. Um, but I do think um, I do think we have the capacity to start you know, somewhere um, and try and um, combat some of the, the, the really um, overt forms of, of Islamophobia. Every, anyone and everyone will... Um, Will co- will complain and, and, and call out uh, when they see Islamophobia on the street. A woman, Muslim woman being harassed, her head headscarf being pulled off. I think where the, where the, the the real difficulty lies is in institutional Islamophobia, in structures that enable and promote people to uh, discriminate against Muslims. Whether that's in employment, in education, um, across uh, politics um, and the media, they the, the, these kinds of unconscious um, ways in which people promote it. I think that, that that's probably where the, the biggest struggle lies. So that sounds to me a fairly negative prognosis. So where's where's the? You said that you also felt optimistic. Yeah. So where where end help us end, end with a an optimistic note. I think where you see um, the biggest transgressions against communities, Muslim communities, what you what you get is a reaction, and I think that that reaction is the perfect uh, place to start the 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 protests and and people coming together in solidarity. That's where you know, you start having that conversation about an optimistic future. We have the ability to create um, a future that, that's better than, than, than we see today. 
So we have, we have that optimism in the reaction against Islamophobia, and perhaps we also have that optimism, as you said earlier, in the role models um, of uh, young Muslims and actually the success of Muslims in British society, and I think in, in your work in reaching out to communities. So uh, Samia Afsal from the um, Muslim Council of Britain, thank you very much. Thank you. Next time, we'll be discussing religion and incarceration. What's going on in our prisons and what impact does that have on the relationship between religion and society? Thank you for listening. <laughs>